Welcome to Climbing Magazine's Climbing Basecamp Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Riley. Thanks for tuning into this preview episode, which we created to give you a little sample of what's to come. And every episode, we'll be featuring in-depth interviews with the pillars of our community that make climbing great. We'll be speaking with athletes, with writers and photographers, with industry VIPs, and of course, with the climbing editorial staff to discuss breaking news and the controversies of the day. Whether you're an elite alpinist, a recreational sport climber, or a V-Fun boulderer, this podcast is for you. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss out on our first full-length episode featuring an interview with young climbing phenom, Matty Hong. In this episode, we'll be talking with our very own Matt Samet, Climbing Magazine's editor-in-chief, about Jeff Chapman's online article, In-Depth, The Evolution of the Nose Speed Record, which can be found on climbing.com. The story of the nose record begins with Yosemite legends John Long, Jim Bridwell, and Billy Westbay climbing the nose in a day in 1975. Over 10 years later, Peter Croft and John Backer broke the record when they climbed the nose in just over 10 hours. Throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the record was broken a number of times, usually by the same cast of characters, including Hans Florin, Dave Schultz, Steve Schneider, Dean Potter, and others. Then on June 6th of this year, Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell smashed the record, climbing the route in under two hours. Matt Salmon and I discussed the significance of the record-breaking ascent, and if it will ever be broken, and about the risks involved in big wall speed climbing. We also have a short interview with Brady Robinson, who served as the executive director of the Access Fund for over 11 years. Recently, he announced he'd be leaving the Access Fund to take a position at Tompkins Conservation. On the day the news was released, Brady and I went climbing in Boulder Canyon, where I got to ask him about his time at the Access Fund and how it feels to be moving on. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Access Fund. Did you know one in five climbing areas in the United States is threatened by an access issue? Whether it's private land, loss of development, public land managers over-regulating climbing, or climber impacts degrading the environment, the list of threats is long and constantly evolving. At Access Fund, they're on a mission to protect climbing access and the integrity of America's outdoor climbing areas. See how you can get involved at accessfund.org. Okay. Here with Matt Samet, Editor-in-Chief at Climbing Magazine. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm wonderful. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing pretty good today. So I got to thank you. I'm super excited to be part of the Climbing Magazine Basecamp podcast. You know, there's a lot of things I think we're going to be able to do with the podcast. In every episode, we're going to be speaking with Climbing Magazine editors and contributors and featuring full-length interviews with athletes and creatives in the industry. So I guess my question to you is, how do you see the podcast fitting into the larger climbing portfolio? Well, I mean, Climbing Magazine has been around for almost 50 years now, and it's it's always, you know, it started, of course, as a print magazine. It was a little black and white thing that was barely 20 or 30 pages long in its first few issues. Um, but ever since the beginning, it's always been about storytelling, you know. So now we're in this new media landscape where Climbing Magazine, of course, has the print magazine. We have Climbing.com. We have our online education, um, the AIM Adventure U stuff. Um, you know, so I see a podcast as just another way of getting 
the the sort of deep, rich, in-depth storytelling we've always been doing out to, to readers and to listeners, obviously. Um, I think it'll allow us to go behind the scenes with some of our print stories, things that we simply don't have space for in print or things that don't translate well to the web. And obviously also to have these um, interviews with some of our, our sports major players and creatives, you know, interviews that, yeah, you could, you could certainly do in print, but, uh, you know, that also are, are going to work great as podcasts, you know, being able to have them in this sort of conversational and formal space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting in the podcast, listening to writers, athletes, photographers, and really filling in the gaps. I feel like sometimes in the magazine, a lot of times stuff has to get edited out. And that stuff in between, in the cracks that is edited out, that can be really fascinating stuff to a lot of people. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we lose a lot of the subtext, right? I mean, if you have eight pages to tell a story and you have this amazing feature, someone's gone to this far-flung destination, a photographer's gone, a writer's gone, they'll have all this content, stuff to make it fit in eight pages. So, you know, or or someone like, you know, the interviews we have coming up with Daniel Woods and Maddie Hong. Yeah, we can do, you know, we had a a two-page little profile of Maddie Hong a few issues ago on young up-and-coming climbers. But again... You know, you can only do so much in two pages. So I think mm-hmm. this, yeah, this just lets us explore more of the subtext, the backstories. And, you know, there's things that emerge when you're when you're speaking to someone that might not necessarily emerge when you're writing or, or photographing. Yeah, you can hear the excitement in someone's voice or maybe someone being shy about something. There is a lot more context to it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it lets us be, you know, more timely with content, too. I mean, the magazine world is working one issue ahead of ourselves. We're on a a two-month production cycle. So, you know, in terms of things, news, newsy things that are happening now, this this will let us uh, really get in there. Well, while talking about how things change but also stay the same, I'd love to talk about Jeff Chapman's article, In Depth, The Evolution of the Nose Speed Record. Mm-hmm. Really well-written piece, really dives deep into the nose record mm-hmm. and, you know, how it started and where it came. Did you get a chance to uh, read that? I did. I've actually read it a few times. I mean, Jeff's a, an amazing writer and editor. He lives here in Boulder, and I think he's mostly worked construction all his life, he told me. Uh, but he was recommended to us by Mark Sinat, who used to be a, a senior contributing editor for the magazine, North Face Athlete. And Mark called me and said, I've got this friend. He's the most amazing editor I've ever met. The guy's super naturally talented. So Jeff interned with us. Um, and yeah, he, he upped the level across the board. So his, his nose story was amazing. And, and I have read it uh, a few times now, you yeah. know, especially given all the kind of things that have been going on on El Cap, you know, with the speed records and, and things like that. Yeah. And have you seen an uptick in speed records itself? Do you see a lot more people going for speed records as well as more high profile athletes going for speed records? I think so. I mean, you know, the history of speed climbing the nose goes back to was it 1975 when Billy West Bay and and John Long and and Jim Bridwell did it in a day, you know, and and ever since then, I mean, and if you look at Jeff's article, it's all there. There's been advancements every year, every Mm -hmm. decade, the time's gotten shorter and shorter, but it seemed like for a long time, there's really maybe only a very small subset of people who are, who are interested in it, you know, and, and often they were kind of camp for Yosemite locals, you know, not that Alex and Tommy aren't, but they're also guys who who go climbing plenty of other places. So yeah, it does seem like more people are doing it. I mean, as more knowledge has accrued about the techniques, as more records have been set on all 
you know, almost all the, the wall climbs on OCAP. I mean, those things that like Ammon Neely and, and those crew were doing, you know, and Dean Potter, those sort of furious like 24 to 36 hour punches up like some of OCAP's hardest aid aid routes, you know, where they're just like going for it and climbing mm-hmm. A4s through the night, taking 100 footers, all this stuff. I mean, there's been, I mean, you know how it is. It's like anything in climbing. The foundation gets bigger and bigger as the level increases. And I think that seems like that's that's what's happened with speed climbing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it seemed like every year the record was being broken like once or twice. And, you know, the, the title was changing hands quite frequently. Mm. But with Tommy and Alex's recent two-hour a record under two hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like they took so much time off that record. Do you think that record will be broken anytime soon? Or do you think it's going to last for quite a while? Well, I mean, you're talking about two of the best rock climbers and wall climbers and big wall free climbers in the world. So, I, you know, I, given given the level of talent and preparation and expertise, I, I don't think... It, it'll be broken anytime soon, but you yeah. never know. I mean, there's obviously other strong teams out there like Brad Gobright and, and Jim Reynolds, and mm-hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of other people who, who could. The question is, will they want to? Because sure. clearly, the faster and faster you go, the more and more you have to cut corners and take risks. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you're trying to run a sub, what is this, sub two-hour marathon, I mean, it doesn't get any riskier whether you do it in two minutes and one second or one minute and 59 seconds. But on the nose, if you're trying to drop from two hours to an hour and a half, that's significant. And you're talking about rock climbing and you're talking about being thousands of feet off the ground and you're talking about refining your protection, your protection systems to the bare minimum and, and simul climbing a ton and short fixing a ton and doing mm-hmm. these these techniques that, you know, are, are, are non-standard, I guess, in, in terms of big wall climbing and that obviously do, do carry more risk. Um, so I, I don't think it's impossible that we'd be broken. There's plenty of talented athletes who can. The question is, will they want to? Yeah. You know, will people want to? And that's a completely a personal decision. Well, do you think if someone did want to, it, they would need to work on the kind of the physicality of setting a record like that? Or do you think it's going to take an advancement of gear and technique God, I don't know. I mean, how how much less gear can you take? I mean, I was looking at at that picture that's been going around on Instagram, you know, of Tommy holding up the rack, and he's got, like, what, eight cams Mm -hmm. and and 16 draws, you know, draws slash slings. I mean, how much less gear can you carry? I mean, yeah, I don't really know. Maybe. I mean, you know, never say never. I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, probably nobody would have, you know, until Dave Schultz came up with short fixing, that wasn't on people's radar. I mean, simul climbing has kind of always been around, but people have always died simul climbing too. I mean, mm-hmm. going back to when people would move together on a rope in the Alps and one climber would pull the other one off or climbers would fall on either side of a ridge and the rope would sever. I mean, you know, going back to to the early days in the Alps, that's always been there. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the joke I always make is that someone should put a 3,000-foot auto belay on top, of, <laughs> on top of the nose and you, you clip in and, and you go because that, that, would, that would probably be the one way equipment-wise you could streamline everything to the 
the bare minimum and just focus on the climbing. Yeah, it would take a little while to get to the bottom, though, if you did fall. Yeah, it would be a long, <laughs> be a long lower off. Hopefully that, that webbing's not running over any yeah. edges. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's literally, it's, I mean, it's a joke, but as a, if you think about it conceptually, if you did that and took these guys and clipped them in, and it could just be one climber at a time, they could probably have their time, right? Mm-hmm. So someone could probably do it in, in an hour. Do you think there are great risks to big wall speed climbing that we should be paying more attention to? I mean, clearly there are, you know, there's been accidents and, and deaths in the last year on El Capitan mm-hmm. um, for people who are using these simul climbing and, and short fixing techniques. You know, it's in, in Jeff's article and, and there's been other, other pieces as well. Um, Jason Wells and Tim Klein lost their lives on on free blast. It sounds like simul climbing, although that's still somewhat of an unknown. Um, but those guys were very experienced, you know, big wall speed climbers. Uh, you know, Quinn Brett fell on the nose and, and and was paralyzed after she hit a ledge. Hans Florian fell on the nose and broke both his ankles pretty badly. You know, and and both of them, it sounds like we're we're short fixing. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is a lot of risk, you know, in terms of how we talk about it. I, I don't really know that, I don't know that it's any different than any other discipline. I mean, climbing is a, a dangerous sport. Yeah, that's know? how I feel. Yeah, I mean, there's a quote right here from, I, I underlined it in Jeff's article. Let me see, I mean, Alex Honnold said it. You know, he was talking about going for the nose record with Tommy uh, after after the accident on free blast and he says we already evaluated the risk and thought about the potential ultimately climbing is just a dangerous game i mean this is from alex honnold who you know has taken arguably the the biggest risks of of any Mm -hmm. any rock climber in history and i think he's just stating a basic truth that i think that's the basic truth we all need to hang on to i mean you see these online threads people getting incensed you know how dare they speed climb they had kids they knew the risks I mean, all climbing is dangerous. People get killed at sport crags all the time. People have died bouldering. I mean, if you don't want to get killed climbing, then don't go climbing. There's plenty of ways to not get killed climbing, but there are also plenty of ways to get killed climbing. But Absolutely. The, yeah. I mean, but you the, get hit by rock fall yeah. just at the base of the crag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just sitting there at the base of the crag getting your lunch, you can get hit by lightning. I've been climbing 30 years and I know lots and lots of climbers who have died. Some in situations where they might've been sticking their necks out and some mm-hmm. just randomly and... I mean, that, that's just part of it. The, that's the bigger question. It's not, is speed climbing too dangerous? Is, the question is, is climbing dangerous? And the answer is, of course it is. Mm-hmm. It always has been. Yeah. And final question, Matt, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, what is the media's responsibility in all of this as far as reporting speed records and reporting on dangerous aspects of rock climbing? Um, well, it's a complicated question. I think one that anyone who who works in climbing media has, has probably been tangling with for the duration of their career. I mean, you know, every, anytime we run a picture of free soling, we'll get letters saying, you know, don't do that. Kids, kids are going to imitate that. You know, we've had some, some pushback on, on speed climbing as well. We get letters saying, why don't all the people in your photos have helmets on? I mean, these are all valid points. Um, I'm just not sure that we can completely address them. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, again, for me, it just comes back to climbing actually is a dangerous sport. I mean, it, there's this illusion that it isn't, I think, that's somewhat been perpetuated by the, the explosive growth of, of gyms and sport climbing, where it's just sort of this little, like recreational kind of Disneyland thing, you mm-hmm. know, when you enter that space. But even then, I mean, people, people have died at like state fair, auto belay, like, you know, stupid little pop-up walls. So, 
Um, I, I think that it's our responsibility to report on the cutting edge of the sport. And often the cutting edge of the sport is people doing very dangerous mm -hmm. things. So I think as long as, as long as we're clear about, you know, as long as we're unbiased in our reporting and not cheerleading, I think, I think we're still doing our jobs. I mean, if we're not like sickest record ever, bro, <laughs> yeah, you got to check it out. You know what I mean? Just yeah. that sort of like bro like go for it, mm -hmm. you know, but I think if we just report the facts, we report the style of the roots were done and, 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 you know, have things like this conversation about the pros and cons, you know, in the next issue of climbing, Julie Ellison did a great piece actually about these very topics, you know, and, and her essay was for, for Talk the Crag, which is the news department in our, in our magazine. And, you know, the thesis was, are, are climbers taking too many risks on El Capitan? And she, you know, kind of like Jeff's article, she goes back, she looks at all these recent accidents, she looks at the techniques like short fixing and simul-climbing, she looks at the pros and cons in each. I mean, you, do, you just have to put it all out there, I mm -hmm. think. I mean, ultimately... We're all climbers. We all make decisions about how much risk we're, we're willing to incur. And, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that it's irresponsible of the climbing media to report on risky ascents. I think it's our job. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great talk. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Great talking to you. All right. There's our chat with Matt Samet, Editor-in-Chief at Climbing Magazine. And again, you can check out the article we discussed by Jeff Chapman at climbing.com. Up next, have a talk with Brady Robinson, former executive director at the Access Fund. So, Brady, you've been at the Access Fund now for over 10 years. Yeah. That's quite a legacy you've you got there. What are you most proud of accomplishing at the Access Fund? I am really proud of starting the Climbing Conservation Loan Program. Um, where we, we've become a certified land trust. Like I said, we've got this million-dollar revolving loan fund. Um, we've done, I think it's 25 acquisition projects now since 2007. And so that program, when they hired me in 07, uh, they were, the board was just kind of thinking about it, and we launched and started raising major funds in the worst economy of our lifetimes, which totally sucked. 2008. <laughs> it wasn't a good time to try to raise a bunch of money, but we got enough money to get a million bucks in the bank, and it's been hugely successful. And Joe Sambatero, who's been a staffer with us since those early days, has been overseeing the program, and so I think that's a huge success. We launched our um, conservation team program in partnership with Jeep, and now we have three teams of two master trail builders out on the road, 10 months out of the year, uh, driving Jeeps around doing stonework, you know, turning big rocks into little rocks and turning those into stone staircases and just kind of showing the community what is possible if we get really serious about stewardship. I'm very proud of that. I'm proud that we've grown our network of local climbing organizations to, like I said, 117. I'm incredibly proud of the staff. When I started, we only had about three people who were really focused on the actual work of climbing access. We had admin people, fundraising, you know, which are all very important functions, but we only had three that were really doing program-related work. We have 15 now. And so, you know, our budget has nearly tripled in size, but I would say our effectiveness has increased much more so. And so not only do we have more people out in the world working on uh, conservation, stewardship, and access, but we've got them all around the country. A number of years ago, I was staring at the wall in my office in Boulder, Colorado, and I asked myself, if I ask the community, okay, we're going to hire somebody else, should we jam one more person in Boulder, Colorado, or should we put them somewhere else out in the world? 
What do you think most climbers would say? <laughs> yeah, not in Boulder. Not in Boulder. Out we, of the our, bubble. That's right. Our kind of reputation was being a little Boulder-centric. Sure. And so now we've got staff scattered all over the country, Southeast, Northeast, California, uh, Pacific Northwest. One guy lives in his van, Arizona, Texas. You know, our footprint and our relevancy has increased hugely. And just like politics, almost all access issues are local. And if you've got someone on the ground who knows the players, who knows the volunteers, who can speak with people and is literate, maybe even has the right accent, <laughs> you can get a lot more done. Yeah. And so I'm incredibly proud of that. And uh, we've just created a, a, a really professional and fun group of people and it makes it a pleasure to come to work every day. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? What makes the Access Fund special? Well, I mean, everybody thinks they're special. So uh, with that caveat, yeah. I'll just say we hire really talented people who are subject matter experts. So people generally who have proven themselves in their area, whether it's on land, you know, land trust and land uh, transactions or environmental scientists or people with PhDs that are relevant in the public policy arenas. And we bring them all together under the umbrella of keeping climbing areas open and, and conserved. And I just leave them the hell alone most of the time. I mean, my job really is to set direction, make sure that we've got the right people in the organization, that they've got a general direction and understand how their role fits into the greater mission. But um, they're out there doing it. And so we have really thrived because we've got so many self-starters. And occasionally when people come in who really you know, need more structure, typically they don't do that well. And so I've learned that over time. But with this community of people, because so many people are, are, have such a high degree of professionalism, it's not me telling people to do a good job. What's inspiring people to do well is that they feel that they are responsible to the community and they also feel that they're responsible to each other. And so when someone new comes in the Access Fund and sees how great everybody else is, I think a lot of people, one of their first impressions is like, oh shit, I got to bring my A game because these people are not messing around. I mean, I think sometimes people think, you know, the nonprofit sector is a little squishy and I have to say, you know, yeah, we've got maybe a little bit more flexibility in our schedules than some other industries, but the degree of professionalism and the amount of the standard that the staff demand of each other is really high and they demand that of me too. So I've had to stand my toes. So that's maybe one of the things. And people are just, people, we have some fun people that work for us. So, I don't know, I could go on. I, <laughs> I could go on, but I won't. Okay. So what's the best way for climbers to get involved if they're not already? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a, there's a few different things. I mean, a lot of people, you know, obviously, the, as the executive director, I can't, I have to say donate and support us. I mean, most of our support, we don't get money from the government, not much. We, we get some from industry. Uh, the outdoor industry has been good to us, but the majority of our funding continues to come from individuals and much of it comes from people who give $35 a year. Mm -hmm. So just because we've got a budget of $3 million, don't think that your $35 membership doesn't count because it really does. But let's say you've already done that or you don't feel like you've, you, you can do that. I would say sign up for our e-news, sign up for, if you're curious about it, sign up for our, our policy. We have a policy newsletter too. One of the most important things climbers can do is just be aware. Think about where you're climbing. Like right now, I actually don't know if we're on forest service land. I suspect we probably are, 
but the Boulder Canyon is this kind of bunch of puzzle pieces of private, forest service, county, and, and city property actually. And I think when people go to a climbing area and they kind of have a rough idea of, okay, this is federal land, this is the BLM maybe managing it, or this is state land, or this is somebody's private property. And I've got to be absolutely on my very best behavior because if the private property owner doesn't like what I'm doing, they're gonna close it down. And I think just having some kind of awareness around that We've got a lot of information on our website on, on uh, behaviors that people can try to exhibit out in the outdoors that are going to support our mission. Those are some things I think you can just once a year, if everybody in the community signed up for a trail day or, or one volunteer day, it would make a huge impact. And one of the best ways you can do that is to um, look around either on our website or just Google around or ask your friends, what is the local organization that's closest to you? Most climbing areas, or regions have got at least one local group that you can reach out to go to a meeting like I said go to a volunteer event get engaged learn what the issues are the way that we are going to have continue to have a lot of influence and grow that influence over time is by having a community of people that pay attention and the one thing I'll say is I've had land managers tell me that when a climber shows up to a trail day often it is equivalent to three like quote regular people because climbers tend to be pretty strong and really gung-ho. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's true for us politically too. When we call upon the climbing community to uh, you know, do a letter writing campaign, either in support or in opposition to something that is gonna threaten one of our beloved places, people stand up and take action. Uh -huh. And so having a community of people that are informed, that are educated, that are willing to take action when necessary is one of the best things that people can do to support our work. Is it also important that companies in our industry get involved and engaged and are active in the conversation as well? Absolutely. I mean, from a funding perspective, over 30% of our funding does come from the industry. And so, you know, I have to say a big shout out to some of the, if I started listing them off, I, I'd, I'd, I'd bore you to tears because it's most <laughs> of the companies in the outdoor industry, but we wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for their support. And I have to say that, you know, we've done a pretty good job. We go to the outdoor retailer trade show every year. And we've done a pretty good job of, um, of hitting those people up for support. But um, yeah, it's absolutely important. And we've got partners from all the way down to you know $500 a year to six figures. And everybody, I feel like, has a role to play. We have, we have people, some of our biggest uh, supporters are actually uh, climbing gyms. And you could say on the one hand, well, you know, the climbing gyms are the indoor environment. Why would a climbing gym owner care enough to give us uh, such, you know, generously donate to us when they're primarily concerned with what's going on in their gym. Well, because they know that their clientele either climbs outside or aspires to climb outside. And so one of the kind of emerging uh, markets in the industry is this, is the, the climbing gym market. It just keeps growing and growing. And we're seeing a lot of gym owners reach out and say, we want to be a part of this movement. We want to support the work of the Access Fund. I was just at the Climbing Wall Association Summit uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, we did a, what we call a little fireside chat. We get everybody together and kind of talk about public policy, the work of the Access Fund. Full house. It, 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 people are interested. And so I've got a lot of hope that as the climbing community continues to grow and as gyms become even more and more ubiquitous, uh, support for our work is going to continue too. You know, sometimes you hear, older crusty climbers 
you and I know a few of those, <laughs> yeah. don't we? I'm, neither one of us, though. We're no, no, no. We're we're young and fresh, spry. <laughs> but sometimes you hear crusty climbers just, you know, bemoan like, oh, these gym climbers, you know. Uh huh. Well, I see a reason for a lot of hope. I think honestly, as climbing has gone more mainstream, and climbing is seen less as like this kind of fringe and uh, rebellious act, I think I actually think that there might be a case to be made that people are more mindful of how they're behaving outside. I mean, I don't like Bluetooth speakers and I don't like crowded climbing areas, but I think for the most part, most climbers want to do the right thing. And uh, I think there's a lot of reason for hope and optimism for the next 10 years. Earlier you were talking about how you go to OR frequently to raise money for the Access Fund and help spread the message. Outdoor Retailer recently left Utah because the organization did not agree with the state's politics or more, maybe more specifically the governor's yeah. attitude towards public lands. That's correct. Has Outdoor Retailer affected uh, state and local politics as well as has it helped you further your own mission? You know, I think it has, and that was somewhat controversial. But there were a few individuals and a few companies that really stepped up. You know, I'm, in some ways, I'm sad to leave Salt Lake. There's a lot of great people and great businesses that were a part of Outdoor Retailer that are probably suffering a little bit because the trade show left. However, you know, we're seeing uh, some of the political win uh, winds shift around public lands. And while there are still some diehard politicians who absolutely, uh, I believe, want to dismantle our public land system, there are a lot of people, including moderate Republicans from Utah, who have no interest in that and who are trying to thread a political needle. And I believe over time are going to be supportive of public lands generally and the protection of the Bears Ears region specifically. And so I think that the industry saying, you know what, we're going to take our ball and go play somewhere else did play a big role in that. Some people were critical and said, well, you're losing all your leverage. You know, if you leave, you've lost all your leverage. But if you're not willing to leave, did you ever have any leverage in the first place? You know, I mean, I think there was the, the threat of leaving for various points in time over the years. And I think the fact that the industry finally did um, sent a really strong message to Utah and to the country that this industry cares about these issues and is willing to take a stand. And so overall, I see it as a net positive. And like I said, I just regret that it had a negative impact on some people in Utah, but that's the way it goes. Pretty, I feel like I have to ask this. You know, many people might not know this, but you're actually leaving the Access Fund. The news is being yeah. delivered, I think, as we speak. Why are you leaving if it's so great? That's a fair question, and uh, it's actually really, it was a really hard decision. It's, um, this has literally been my dream job, and there is no other job like this in the world. Uh, there's other climbing organizations out there, obviously, but this particular organization focused on what it is and the nature of this, this job, I believe is unique. And so I've had it for almost 11 years, and it's been great. The thing is, is... Um, I think there's value in staying fresh and having new challenges, for, you know, personally. I think there's value in uh, fresh leadership emerging for the organization. And um, one of the arts, I believe, of being executive directors of nonprofits is 
is knowing when to make a graceful exit. The organization is on really solid footing. Uh, we're doing pretty well financially. We've got a great management team, strong board. And I am really excited to take the skills that I've learned at the Access Fund and apply them into another context. So I'm going to go work uh, for Tompkins Conservation. It's an organization that was founded by Doug and Chris Tompkins. Uh, Doug famously founded uh, the North Face and Esprit, and Chris was the original CEO of Patagonia and, and presided over that with uh, Yvonne Chouinard over a period of just incredible growth. And both of them uh, used their personal fortunes to buy up huge tracts of wild land in uh, Chilean and Argentinian Patagonia and turn them into parks. And they just completed what is, I believe, the biggest uh, public-private partnership land conservation project in the history of the planet. Wow. And so I'm going to go there and head up uh, international fundraising for them, trying to connect teams who are working on parks, uh, marine protected areas, and rewilding efforts in both Chile and Argentina, trying to connect them with donors in the United States and trying to help them get um, on their own financial footing and, and be sustainable over time. You know, Chris just completed this incredible transaction and now uh, I feel like, you know, the organization faces some questions like, you know, what more can they do and how can they make this sustainable? Frankly, I'm on thin ice saying more than that because <laughs> I haven't even started yet and, um, and I'm not really qualified to speak on behalf of the organization, but I'll say this, that it's, Chris has been a personal hero of mine. I've been watching what they've been doing since I worked down in, in uh, Chile for Outward Bound many years ago. And it is an absolute dream uh, for me to get an opportunity to work in that part of the world and to work on international conservation and, and take my skill set and apply it to this new place. So I just want the world to know that, you know, I'm committed to having a really smooth and successful uh, transition. Uh, I'm going to be consulting with the board and the staff over the coming months to make sure that there is a smooth transition. And there is just an incredible opportunity for the right leader out there. I believe the, that leader is out there somewhere in the world and I believe the Access Fund board is going to find that person. And uh, I just really look forward to seeing what the Access Fund can do in the next 10 years. Well, that sounds like a really exciting opportunity. And I'm sure you're going to be missed at the Access Fund. You know, you've done so many incredible things there. But it sounds like you're not going very far and you're not leaving Boulder. No, I'm not still leaving the of, bubble. I'm, I'm going to still be based in Boulder. And, you know, I think part of the reason that Chris Tompkins had the confidence to hire me for this job is that she, she and Doug came to uh, their passions for conservation through outdoor activities and climbing. And I think she saw that same kind of fire in my eyes and so in some ways I'm doing the same kind of work just in a different context and on a larger scale. Well I think that's good. You want to you want to climb a few more pitches well, or you, I would you want to talk to more? I would love to climb a few more pitches. We are sitting under what's allegedly a classic <laughs> <Yeah>. soft <laughs> 512A in Boulder Canyon. So if we can climb this before we hike out I think we're going to feel a little better about ourselves. Yeah I think that's a good way to finish the day. Yeah. Yeah, let's right. do it. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you, Brady. All right. Well, there's the preview episode of the Climbing Base Camp podcast. want to thank both our guests today, Matt Samet and Brady Robinson. And please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review. 
Theme music for the podcast was provided by Small Houses. You can check out their music at smallhouses.bandcamp.com. All right, see you at the next pitch. Thank you.